right, I cannot tell you how excited I am getting. We have one more week after today that we'll be in this building. Gosh, five, how long have we, five, almost five and a half years, been setting up and tearing down, and now we are down to one more setup. That is awesome. I cannot wait. I cannot wait. Also, I uh, just want to quick celebrate. Uh, Amanda has been part of a, uh, a, a, what do you call it, Bible club, Bible study it's called the Good News Club. It started off at Pleasant Grove Elementary School, public school, and they thought originally, how many kids you, th- 25 kids originally signed up, and now how many do you have signed up? 67 kids signed up in a public school to read, study the Bible, and worship, and it is awesome. Yes, praise God. And so I'm sure with that influx of kids, you probably could use some more help, I'm imagining. Or is there a lot of, is there a lot of adults? The help? Oh, gotcha. Right, right. Gotcha. Okay. Gotcha. So they had a cutoff enrollment, if you didn't hear, um, because they need more people who are trained to, to be a part of this. And so if you're interested in getting trained, talk to Amanda. I'm sure she can help you out. Yeah, yeah. And this is something, I mean, I would love to see spread throughout all of Bullock County. That would be awesome. I'd love it. Awesome, awesome. Well, praise God for that. Praise God for that. All right, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. If you've got one of our Bibles, it is on page 954. By the way, my name is Nate. If I, didn't, I know we've got a few guests in here from out of town. I'm one of the pastors here. I've got the great privilege of being able to teach God's Word today. Uh, by the way, if you don't own a Bible or if you've got an old Bible, you need a new one, feel free to take this home with you. This is our gift to you. We are in Luke chapter 5, and we're actually going to get into a little bit of Luke chapter 6 today. And so it's five, 954. We have been walking through the book of Luke passage by passage, and if you've been with us for the last few week, you, weeks, you've probably noticed a rising tension in the text. Jesus is absolutely loved and adored by the crowds. They love his teaching, they love his healing ministry, of course, but the religious leaders, these Pharisees, these scribes, have this growing unease about this popular rabbi. At least that's how they look at Jesus. And if you think about what's happened over the last few chapters, it kind of makes sense. Think about what Jesus has done. First of all, he touched somebody with leprosy. He reached out and touched, and for a good Jew, that, you just didn't do that. Because if you touch somebody with leprosy as a Jew, you become ceremonially unclean. You are not fit to be around, around God's people. You are not fit to be in God's presence. But in that moment, when Jesus reaches out and touches this leper, He doesn't become unclean. The leper becomes clean. And then the next thing that happens, we see Jesus had the audacity to heal somebody and not just say you're healed, but to say your sins are forgiven. I mean, who has the authority to forgive sins except for God himself? And so the religious leaders, they see this and they say, this is blasphemy. I mean, he's claiming to be God. And then from there, he goes from that scene to Levi, a tax collector, and he says, Levi, come follow me. Be one of my disciples. And then what does he do next? He goes to Levi's house. He reclines with him. He eats with him. They have this feast, and all of Levi's friends 
The tax collectors and the sinners are there, and, and Jesus is right in the midst. And so the Pharisees are just like, what in the world are you doing, Jesus? Okay, we don't, good Jews don't do these things. And by, by the end of the text today, the passage today, these Pharisees are just ready to blow their top. Okay, in fact, Luke says in the text, he says they are filled with fury, literally, literally rage, or they've lost their, their minds. They're, they're madder than a hornet in a, in a Coke can, right? And we're going to see why. Today, Jesus is going to respond to two questions from the Pharisees. One of them is about fasting, like why are you not fasting? And the second one is about keeping the Sabbath. Okay, these are two things you don't often talk about in church. And so when you're walking through the Bible, you get to talk about things you don't normally get to talk about. So this is one of those weeks, and I kind of like these kind of sermons. Uh, I get to learn a lot myself, and I hope you do too. And my hope is that as we walk through these passages, that we might learn something about the nature of fasting and keeping the Sabbath. And so if you're taking notes, and if you've got one of the bulletins, you're going to see the outline is kind of driven as we compare how the Pharisees fasted to how we are supposed to fast, and how the Pharisees and why the Pharisees kept the Sabbath and, and why we should keep the Sabbath and what that looks like. And we're going to compare those things. And so that's where we're going today. I want to pray one more time, and then we're going to dive into this text together. Father, thank you for this moment. And I pray that your spirit would guide this moment. I pray that we would see that our hearts would be fully satisfied with you in this moment. That our hearts would grow in hunger for more of you because of this. Father, we need your word. We need you right now. Change us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so picking up in verse 33 of chapter 5. And they, talking about the the Pharisees, they said to him, the disciples of John, talking about John the Baptist, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wine skins. And then I think this last verse, verse 39, is meant to be kind of an ironic question to condemn the Pharisees. He says, and of course, no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. So I think he's saying that, look, this is how you think. You think that no one after drinking old wine desires anything new, for he says the old is good enough. So that's their mentality. Now, I want you to notice, first of all, that this is a continuation of the conversation that they started in the previous verses. 
The word and at the beginning of verse 33 points to that. The Pharisees had questioned the disciples, if you remember, and Jesus, why are you associating with these tax collectors, these, these sinners? And now they're going to question his disciples about their actual their dedication to God. They're saying, look, John the Baptist, his disciples, they fast. The Pharisees, their disciples, they fast. But here you are, you're not fasting, you're not abstaining from food. In fact, you're feasting with sinners. How can this be? Now, remember, the Pharisees, they love rules. I mean, they, they loved to make rules on top of rules, to, to protect them from the rules. And they had decreed that godly people, if you're really going to be a godly person, they said, you have to fast twice a week. Every Monday and every Thursday, you have to fast. That was their rule. Some Pharisees, they, they viewed, viewed uh, fasting as, as a sacrifice. In fact, they looked at fasting as really a time to mourn. It was a sacrifice, a mournful offering of their own flesh to God. And and their hopes were that through this fasting, they would gain God's approval and his attention. For them, true religion was was solemn, it was serious, it was joyless, it was gloomy. And so fasting for the Pharisees, they tried to look as sad as possible. They would would paint their face kind of white. And they, they would wear old clothes and dirty clothes so that everybody would notice that they were fasting. And, and they believed that, look, you can't be really spiritual unless you're uncomfortable. For them, it wasn't about a relationship. It was about checking something off a list so they could feel good about themselves. Now, knowing that kind of helps us understand the response that Jesus gives here. He uses three illustrations, doesn't he? The first one, he asks this question to them. He asks can you make a wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is still with them? And so this is what Jesus, Jesus is implying, that it makes absolutely no sense if you're at a wedding reception to fast, right? That's a time of celebration. In fact, in biblical times, newlyweds didn't even go on a honeymoon. They would spend the first week of their marriage staying at home, and they would have an open house where they would invite everybody to come to their house, and they would have continuous festivities and and feasting. And so Jesus' presence was not a time to fast. Because he was there with them, it was a time to feast. It was a time to rejoice and celebrate. It was not a time to mourn. And so he, he goes on to tell them, verse 35, the days will come when the bridegroom, he's talking about himself, is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. And so he's saying, look, look, fasting won't stop forever. There is a place for fasting. Now, there is a minor debate about what Jesus was referring to when he said those days. When are those days? There's some that would argue that he's just talking about the, the days between the crucifixion and the resurrection. But if you look on in, in Acts, we see that the disciples, even after the resurrection, spent time fasting and praying together. And so, in the second illustration, as we move on, the second illustration is, is a parable. He says in verse 36, No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it onto an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And so, in, in Mark's account of this same story, he describes the new garment as unshrunk. And so if you've got an old pair of jeans and they get a hole in them and you try to patch them, does anybody actually do that anymore, by the way? When was the last time you patched a pair of jeans? Anybody? Two weeks 
Scott did two weeks ago. You're the man. You're the man. But if you take old jeans and you put a new piece of fabric that hasn't shrunk yet, what's going to happen when you put the jeans in the, in the washer and the dryer? Okay, that piece is going to shrink and it potentially is going to tear away from the patch. It's just not going to work. So that's what Jesus is saying here. You can't put the old with the new. The third illustration is very similar, verse 37. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed also. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And so in ancient culture, they would take the skins of goats. They would sew them together and they would create these pockets or these uh, pouches where they would put wine into them. And so if you had new skin, it was very flexible, it could expand, and if you had new wine, it had to ferment, and so you needed something that would be kind of stretchable. They, they needed stretchy pants, or stretchy, <laughs> they needed something that would stretch. And so if you put new wine into these old, hard, uh, just non-flexible wine skins, if they're brittle, what's going to happen is when the wine ferments, it's going to burst the wine skin. And so what's, what's the point that Jesus is trying to make here? This is really the point of the whole text. Jesus is saying that, look, if you try to mix the old, inflexible religion of the Pharisees with the new, grace-filled gospel of Christ, it just simply will not work. And so when it comes to fasting specifically, Jesus was saying that there will be a day when my disciples will fast, but they're not going to fast like the Pharisees. The Pharisees, they fasted because they were trying to gain God's attention. They were simply being religious. They were trying to manipulate God's love and God's blessing. They say, well, okay, if I'm really good, if I, if I do all these religious things, then God will bless me. They fasted also to just impress other people. They did it so everybody could see what they were doing. They, they dressed down so they, they could see that, look, woe is me, I'm fasting. So that everybody acknowledged, look how religious those people are. And then they could check it off their list. Again, it wasn't about a relationship to them. It was just about being religious. But Jesus, he brings in a new era, a new kingdom. And in this new kingdom, fasting is not simply a tradition or a ritual to be followed. Okay, it's not about being religious. Fasting is a way to feast on Jesus, on God's word. Think about, there's two times where we see in the New Testament that Jesus is fasting. One of them is when he goes into the wilderness for 40 days to be tested. He fasts for 40 days. And how does Satan tempt him? What's the first thing he, he tempts him with? It was bread. Okay, he's got to be starving, right? So Satan comes to him with, with bread. Eat. And what does Jesus say in response? He says, I don't want your bread. I'm paraphrasing here. I don't want your bread because... I have, I've been nourished by God's word. That's all I need. I need God's word. Later on in his ministry, uh, when he's ministering to the, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well, and his disciples are trying to convince him, look, you need to eat something. And so he must have been fasting. We don't know how long at that point he had been fasting. But how does he respond to his disciples? He says, look, I have nourishment that you, you don't understand. You can't see. My nourishment is to do the will of my Father and to accomplish what he sent me to do. And so fasting, what we see here in the new kingdom, is, is really feasting on God. Fasting is a way to show that 
look, I long for Christ. I long for His return. Fasting is saying, Jesus, I want you. Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I long for you. You are my treasure. You are what I want more than anything else. Jesus, come, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. Fasting causes your body to ache as a constant reminder that our souls should ache for Jesus. So John Piper, pastor, theologian, says that fasting, this is really interesting, he says it's the best weapon that we have against our greatest enemy to loving God. And what's interesting is, it's really insightful, I think, what he sees as our greatest enemy. So this is a quote from a book he wrote, it's called A Hunger for God. Piper says this, the greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. And the most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of earth. For when these replace an appetite for God himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. Jesus said, Some people hear the word of God, and a desire for God is awakened in their hearts, but then, as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life. comes from Luke 8, 14. The pleasures of this life, Piper says, and the desires for other things, these are not evil in themselves. These are not vices. These are gifts of God. They are your basic meat and potatoes, and coffee, and gardening, and reading, and decorating, and traveling, and investing, and TV watching, and internet surfing, and shopping, and exercising, and collecting, and talking, and the list could go on. And all of them, he says, listen to this, all of them can be a deadly substitute for God. Fasting is saying this, I want God more than I want his gifts. The goal of fasting is to make God the supreme hunger of your heart. Fasting is feasting on Jesus and on God's word. And so I would, I would love to challenge you this week to spend some time fasting. Jesus said, when you fast, he's saying this to his disciples, so he expected them to fast. When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, talking about the Pharisees, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. And so we ought to fast in secret. Your fasting is between you and God. And if you're, if you're pregnant or, or uh, if you've got some kind of medical condition, understand this, fasting doesn't have to be for you about food. You can fast from something else. Maybe you spend the week fasting from technology or fasting from television, or fasting from the internet, or whatever else uh, is an idol in your heart that you've put above God. The focus is on taking something away, having the self-control to take something away that you love for something that you love even more, and trying to get that, that hunger for God to be inflamed in you. And so I would also, we, we could talk a lot more about fasting. There's uh, some great resources out there that I would recommend to you uh, if you want to read more about fasting. One is uh, Richard Foster's Celebration of Disciplines. Uh, He's got a great chapter in there. Uh, Another one is Donald Whitney's Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. And And then the third one is John Piper's Hunger of God, or Hunger for God. 
And if you need those, we can put them online later on. We, we, we'll post them later. All right, so while we learn something significant about fasting in this passage, again, that's not Luke's main point. Okay? Luke's main point is to show that there's a significant difference between how the Pharisees related to God and how the disciples of Jesus ought to relate to God. And again, if you, if you try to mix the old, inflexible religion of the Pharisees with the new grace-filled gospel of Christ, it just simply does not work. And that's the same point that we're going to see as we carry forward in the next chapter. Go, go back to your Bibles. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. So we're going to move from talking about fasting now, or fasting, to now talking about Sabbath. There's another question that the Pharisees are about to ask. And this text may sound a little familiar if you're here a couple weeks ago. This is the parallel passage that Chris from Scotland preached on, and so we're not going to spend as much time walking through this, but there's some important points that we need to see. So starting in verse 1, chapter 6. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them together with their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And so the Pharisees were accusing Jesus and his followers of breaking the fourth commandment of the Ten Commandments. Number four, Exodus 20, verses 9 and 11. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your sons or your daughters, your male servants, your female servants or your livestock, the sojourner who is with, within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the, the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now, the Pharisees, of course, who love rules, they added rules on top of rules to make sure they didn't break that rule. In fact, they had 39 categories of rules with a bunch of subcategories under them defining what you could and could not do on the Sabbath. And the disciples here had broken two specific rules. They had picked grain, and then they had rubbed the kernels in their hands. And the Pharisees saw this, and they were infuriated. What are you doing? This is the Sabbath. You're breaking the rules. And so how does Jesus respond? His first argument back to them, his first response is to say, hey, look back at King David. And King David, for those Pharisees, would have been like their hero. King David was the king of Israel during the Golden Age. He was the guy that beat Goliath. They all loved King David. And Jesus refers back to a story in 1 Samuel chapter 21. David, at this point, was desperate. He was running from Saul, and, and he was famished. The guys with him were starving also. And so, in desperation, he goes into the temple, and he asks the priest, Ameliach, uh, he says, look, do you have any food at all? And the priest says, no, there's, there's none here except for the bread of the presence, the consecrated bread that was reserved for the priest's. And he, he says to David, look, are, are you clean and are the men with you ceremonially clean? And he says, yes. And so the priest very mercifully gives him his own bread. And so David takes it and they go enjoy a meal 
together. And Jesus understood what the Pharisees did not about the Old Testament law. He understood that the heart of the law was mercy and not sacrifice. He understood Hosea 6.6, that compassionate actions rather than ritual observations were God's heart. And so the first response that Jesus gave is a biblical argument to them, which leads us to the second response he gives. He says this, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Boom, drop the mic, right? I am Lord of the Sabbath, he says. Jesus is saying, the Sabbath doesn't rule me. I rule the Sabbath. I am supreme over the Sabbath because I'm the one who created the Sabbath. And so let's take a minute to talk about why God instituted the Sabbath. And you got a hint of this in the passage that we read earlier. The Sabbath was rooted in creation. God worked for six days and then he rested. And in Genesis chapter 1, after each one of the days of creation, God looks at all of it, and what does he see? He sees it's all what? Good. Good. Okay, he creates light. It's good. Land, good. Plants, good. Birds, good. And then he gets to the sixth day, he creates humans, and he says what? It's very good. This is at the very end of Genesis chapter 1 and at the beginning of chapter 2. And remember, there's no, in the original manuscripts, there was no chapter breaks. And so this is all one thought. Verse 31, chapter 1, Genesis. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day, and he made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This is what it means to be to, to Sabbath, to rest. On the seventh day, God looked at all that he had done, all that he had finished, and said, look, it is finished. I am fully satisfied. That's what it means to Sabbath. To say, I am fully satisfied. There is nothing that I need. Sabbath rest is deep, satisfying rest for your soul. Sabbath rest is is stopping work to enjoy the fruits of your work. After the Exodus, after God freed the Israelites from captivity, God connects their new freedom with Sabbath rest. And so in essence, what he was saying is, look, those who overwork, those who can't take a break, they're like slaves. Anyone who cannot rest is like a slave. God is saying, look, Sabbath rest is freedom. But it's not just rest for your external body, it's inner rest for your soul. Tim Keller says it really well. He says, we need rest from the anxieties and the strain of our overwork which is really an attempt, our overwork is really an attempt to justify ourselves, to gain money or status or reputation we think we have to have. And so avoiding overwork requires deep rest in Christ's finished work for your salvation. Only then will you be able to walk away regularly from your vocational work and truly rest. In our passage today, Jesus essentially calls himself 
the Lord of rest. Jesus in Matthew 11, 28 and 29, he says, come to me, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. See, nothing in this world can give you the deep, satisfying rest that your soul desires other than Jesus Christ. Nothing in this world. Without Jesus, you will, even when you try to rest, you will still be working. Maybe you've experienced that. You go on vacation and you're supposed to be resting, but where is your mind thinking? Back to your to-do list and all the things that you've got to get done at your job. But here's the thing. With Christ, it is possible for you to rest even while you're working. While Christ, without Christ, even when you try to rest, you'll still be working. But with Christ, it is possible for you to rest even while you're working. I want to explain this in a number of different ways because I want you to get this. When, when you no longer have to prove your, your righteousness because your righteousness lies in Christ, when you ha- don't have to prove yourself, your self-worth, you're free to rest. Let me say it another way. When, when you recognize that when you are united with Christ, there is nothing that you can do to gain more of God's love. And there is nothing that you have done to remove God's love from you. You know that your soul is secure. Your hope is secure. And you can rest. Without hope, there is no rest. Let me say it another way. When you learn to stop finding your identity in your job or in your parenting ability or in your grades or in your success, and instead you find your identity fully in being a child of God, redeemed by Christ, forgiven and accepted because of what he has done on the cross, then your soul finds rest. Now back to our passage, after Jesus makes this very bold claim that he is the Lord of the Sabbath, he backs it up with action. Look at verse 6. On another Sabbath, he enters the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees, these religious leaders, they watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he, Jesus, knew their thoughts, because he's God. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. He says, come stand here. I wanna, he's going to make an example of him. Come stand here. And he rose and he stood there. And Jesus said to them, said to the Pharisees, these religious, self-righteous people, he says, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or destroy it? Very tough question for them. And after looking around at them, he just kind of pauses after he asks that question. He looks at them and he says to this man, stretch out your hand. And the man does so. And his hand was restored. But look at their response, verse 11. But they were filled with fury, rage. They were outside their mind. And what did they start to do? They start to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. 
Not only does Jesus here show that he is the Lord of the Sabbath by making an example of this man, he also drives home the point to the Pharisees that, look, mercy is more important than your man-made rules. And again, this infuriates the Pharisees. Which leads me to my final point. The mercy that Jesus gives us was not cheap. It cost him. Eventually, these Pharisees would find a way to kill Jesus. God's mercy is free to us, but it was not free for him to give. The mercy he shares with, him, with us cost him greatly. He gave his life as a ransom for ours. His mercy cost him, but it also led him to deep Sabbath rest. According to the Gospel of John, what did Jesus say on the cross right before he yields his spirit, right before he takes his last breath? What does he say? It is finished. That phrase is just one word in the Greek. It's to tell us to tell us die. I, I love this. It means literally paid in full. Your redemption has been fully paid for. He had accomplished everything that he came to do. And he says, it is finished. Just like creation, he looks at all that he had done and he is fully satisfied. It is finished. And he says, it is time to rest. And because he rests, Hebrews chapter 4 says that we can enter into his rest. And my prayer for Mercy Hill is that we would be a church that learns to feast on Jesus and rest in Jesus regularly. That fasting would be a regular part of our spiritual diet, but that we would not fast like the Pharisees just to check it off a list, that we would fast to fuel our hunger for more of God, that it would cause us to, to hunger more for Him as we feast on Him. And also, like Hebrews 4 says, that we would strive to enter into His rest, knowing that it is rest for the soul. And, and Sabbath rest is not about going and binging on Netflix or watching football on Sunday. Okay, Sabbath rest is, is learning to meditate on the finished work of Jesus and what He did on the cross for us and being fully satisfied in him. And right now, we have an opportunity to do just that. Communion, we, we celebrate communion as believers every single week because it, it's literally feasting on Jesus. But more than that, it's an opportunity for us to meditate on the finished work on, of Christ and what he did on the cross for us so that we might be fully satisfied in him. And so if you're a believer, if you've trusted in Christ, if you repented of your sins and you've got a relationship with him and the spirit of Christ is in you, I would encourage you to celebrate with us and to meditate on the finished work of Christ so that your soul might find rest. Because you know, if you're a believer, you, no matter what is going on in your life right now, no matter what the circumstances, no matter how chaotic, no matter what you're going through, whether it's at school or, or transitions or with family or whatever it is, if you can learn to do these two things, if you can learn to feast on Jesus and rest in Jesus, no matter what's going on in your life around you, your soul can be fully satisfied. And that is good news. 
If you don't have a relationship with Christ, if you've never trusted in him, I would encourage you, your, your soul is longing to find rest. And maybe today God is calling you to enter into his rest for eternity. And I would love to talk to you more about that. During this time, what's going to happen? If you're, uh, if you're a believer, you're going to come forward and you can go to the left or your right. You're going to take the bread, which represents Christ's body. You're going to dip it in the juice, which represents his blood that was shed for us for the forgiveness of sins. You can go back to your seat. I would encourage you to spend that time meditating on what he has done for you. If you've got questions about salvation or baptism or, or membership or anything else that we've talked about today, please don't leave today until you talk to me or talk to Scott or somebody that you trust. If you need prayer, uh, I'll be in the back during this time also. I would love to spend some time praying with you. But after everybody's gone through the line, uh, we're going we're gonna to stand together and we're going to worship and, and celebrate and say, thank you, Jesus, that once we were your enemy, but now we get to feast at the table with you. And that is good news. And so we're going to celebrate and sing that together. And so you come as God is calling you to come. The box here, this is for our, our, uh, our regular attenders. This is for our members. So if you're a visitor, don't feel obligated, but this is how we continue to, to grow the mission that we've been put on here. So you come as God is calling you to come.